for good. And so, too, at the end, will we, even if we don't see it now, we will be able to say and we will be able to proclaim that God is purpose and that you are bringing this about for good in every and all circumstance, that God is intended is always good. So it causes us to trust. Practically, if you really understand this, then when events happen in your life, you're not going to be surprised by them, but instead you're going to trust in your Heavenly Father. You're going to say that nothing's out of his control, but I know his character. I know that my father sent his son that he would be cut off, that I might be saved. And so I know and I trust that he is good. And I trust that nothing's out of his control. So I'm not surprised, but instead I trust. Right? We also know that he is good, that God is not the author of sin, but instead we are. And so we trust in his goodness. And then the next thing is that we learn that we're responsible. Right? I mean, you can't ignore the scriptures talk all about our responsibility. They exhort us. You know, seek, obey, abide. They, they call us all these things. And so we are called to, to take responsibility for our actions, for our sin, to repent, to confess. So just to, just to kind of get us up to date, I know that, that was a really long review. So we're going to be a little bit briefer with, with our passage today. But if you turn, we're going to read through we're in, uh, Romans nine twenty four through ten four. And it's just important that we approach this. We have the full, we're going to move on from this. This is a, a tough a, a tough chunk of scripture. And so we just wanted to make sure that we're thorough and that we really get, a, get an understanding. All right, so verse, verse 24, he says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. All right. So real quick, I just want to run through this passage and five things that this passage teaches us. We're not going to get to go through everything as in-depth, but five different things that this passage teaches us. First, it teaches us about the ethnic diversity of the kingdom, right? It teaches us about the ethnic diversity of the kingdom. And he talks about, in verse 24, he says, Even us whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What he is saying here is that we approach election and we think that God is is selective, right? We think that God is limited, that God's partial, but what Paul's doing here is he's showing how inclusive God is. God is not simply exclusive, but God is inclusive. And he quotes Hosea. So in case we need a reminder, Hosea was a prophet that God told to go marry a prostitute because it was a symbol of how Israel was related to God. 
God says, listen, I'm related to my people as a marriage. And so he says, my, my people are cheating on me. They're committing adultery. They're prostituting themselves by forsaking me and by running after other gods. And so he tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute to symbolize this. And Hosea has children with this woman named Gomer, right? And, and she has three children. And the second child, God calls and he says, listen, I want you to name this child No Mercy. For I will not have mercy on Israel any longer. And he names, names uh, the next one, um, you are not my people. And aren't you thankful, at least at this point in time, that like we don't name names based on like anything specific? We're just like, oh, Brian, you know, like Peter, Michael, you know, and we're not like looking at people and be like, no mercy, no people, you know, like that would be a rough go of life. I'm just saying. Um, and so he he names them that. And then later on in Hosea, what you see is that it's such a beautiful picture because God comes and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to whisper in her ear. I'm going to go and I'm going to whisper these sweet nothings in her ear. I'm going to call her to myself. I'm going to go in the midst of her whoring, in the midst of her prostitution. I'm going to ransom her. I'm going to rescue her. And I'm going to take those who forsake me and who are not my people, and I'm going to make them my people. I'm going to take those who who are not having mercy, and I'm going to lavish my mercy upon them. And Paul looks at that and he says, Don't you see that God has always been one who has taken those who weren't his, and he is about making a people for himself. And he says, this is how God approached the Gentiles. Paul looks at this, who is related to Israel, and he says, you know who's the true Israel? No longer those who are physically descended from, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's those who are laid to Jesus. And he says, God went to the Gentiles, and he took a, a broad portion. All he, he says, and later on he says that like, there's going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? It says in the scriptures, that are going to be represented. And so the kingdom is ethnically diverse. He is about bringing a whole people group to himself. God is not exclusive. He is inclusive, seeking to include all peoples. And so he, he quotes this, and he says, it was prophesied. Why is it that Israel doesn't believe? It was prophesied that God would make a name for himself, that God would draw the Gentiles to himself. It was also prophesied that there would only be a remnant that would believe. It's amazing. God, God told them. Later on, you see in Isaiah, and he talks about he says concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a remnant. So Israel, though they had been given the promises, God told them that only a remnant will come. And we'll see later on. He has a, an argument that we'll look at later on in Romans where he talks about that somehow God's going to bring about a salvation for all, for all Israel. There's going to be a grand movement of God where he's going to redeem. and He's going to move in these people. So, one of the things that we see first in this passage is that God is about eth- the ethnic diversity of his kingdom. God's not exclusive. He is inclusive. The second part we see is the irony of disbelief, right? The irony of disbelief. And he, he talks about it when, uh, when he says, what then shall he say? He's making conclusions off of this. And, and he says, isn't it ironic? The Gentiles wanted nothing to do with God. The Jews said that they wanted everything to do with God. But yet the Gentiles are the ones that ended up getting God, while the Jews are the ones that forsook him. Don't you see this irony? It's as if, and he talks about that the Jews are pursuing this righteousness. They're pursuing, thinking of a race, right? They're chasing after this righteousness. They're getting up at 5 a.m., they're running miles, they're training for this race. But yet when it came to it, it was a gift. And they had trained so hard, they had been so disciplined, that they had trusted in their own ability to perform in the race. But you see, the Gentiles who are these couch potatoes, 
just sitting on there relaxing, God comes along and he gives them this offer. You see, they hadn't been working for it. They hadn't been seeking it. But they're presented to it. And so they grab it because they see what a deal. They see that they can't, but that he can. And so they trust in him. It's this irony that those that were closest to God end up being those furthest. And that those were the furthest from God end up being the ones that end up being the closest to him. And you know what this does? This should rid us of any pride. This should rid us of any apathy, thinking that we're entitled. You see, I talk to people that are, go to Christian schools or are raised up in the church, and you see this almost a sense of entitlement, where, well, I, I've been a part of this. My, my mom went to church, or I went to this. And you see what this does? Is It says, listen, you are not close to God because of proximity. You're not close to God because of physical descent. You're not close to God because you're close to the church. You're close to God because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's this irony that is presented here that though though they should have been, and sometimes we have that perspective, don't we? We think these people are so close. We think, oh, they're, they're good, so we kind of almost discount needing to share the gospel. And he says, don't you see that it's actually sometimes those who seem like they're closest that are actually the furthest away because they're trusting in their own ability rather than God's. They're deluded. They're self-deceived. They're self-deceived. And oftentimes, even us who come to the church, we think, I've read my Bible, I've been disciplined, I'm coming to church consistently. We don't realize that oftentimes we can be trusting in our own performance rather than in God's grace. We can be coming to him with hard hearts rather than softened. So we see here the irony of, of disbelief, that the first will be last and the last will be first. Third, we see the stumbling block of the gospel, right? The stumbling block of the gospel, and he says this, if you look in verse 32, he talks about why they didn't. And he says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying, listen, everybody is running and God chooses in the middle of the race to put this huge stone and it doesn't go anywhere. It's not moving. You have to choose what you're going to do with it. I, when, I re, when I read this, I started thinking of a steeplechase. You know, like you have people that are just running on the track, and there's this huge obstacle in the way. And some people, like, do all kinds of different things with it. Sometimes you see people just bite it. You know, like, I don't know, it's, it's a little humorous. You, know, you have these Olympic athletes, and sometimes, man, they just bite it in the steeplechase. Like, they're just running, and they go, and they can't jump over it. And so you just see them just, like, eat turf, you know, or, or eat track. And, and what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, there are some that they approach Christ and they don't know what to do with them. They, they're so, so stuck on their ability and their performance. They say, it's just too easy. Just too easy. It doesn't make sense. You mean that somebody who's committed all these horrific crimes, they can actually trust Christ and be forgiven? That doesn't seem like justice. That's not fair. I've been a good person all my life. I give to those who give to me. You know, I love those who are close to me. I treat people fairly. It's, not, that's, it's just too easy. And so you see they stumble over the stumbling block because they're so stuck on their performance. They're so stuck on their ability. Their eyes are only set on them that they miss God entirely. And they stumble over him. And he says, what do you do with Jesus? How do you approach him? Because no one is neutral. No one is neutral when they approach Christ. When you hear grace, you either run to it or you run from it. Because grace says that you deserve it. Right? It says that you've done something in order that you're not owed something else. You've sinned, that you have fallen short, that you are an 
unable and inadequate. But it says that God has. God can. God is adequate and he is able. And so we approach with either saying, well, I'm not that bad with a self-delusion, which which basically is we haven't actually thought deeply about our heart. Because, you see, when we trust in our performance, it shows that we haven't really done true introspection, that we really haven't looked at our heart's motives, that we're still thinking of things as outward appearance rather than what's in the heart. We don't think of that God looks at the, the heart, the motives, and that's what matters to him. Whether It's not just whether we've done an act of giving, but it's that have we been a joyful and generous giver. So God cares more about our more about our heart, and the gospel is a, is a stumbling a stumbling block if we don't approach it and run to His grace and say that I can't, but He can. If we don't tr- if we don't trust in His performance instead of our performance. Richard Lovelace, cause it, real quick, just to go back to that, I think there's two approaches, right? That's that's the approach of the non Christian. The non Christian hears the gospel proclaimed and they either trust in their performance or trust in Christ's performance, right? But what about us that are Christians? How do we struggle with this? And I think this is a really good quote by Richard Lovelace. He says this. He says, We all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our, our level of sanctification. We start each day with our personal security, resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. These arguments will not quiet the human conscience. We are inevitably moved to a self-righteous Righteousness, which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. You hear what he says? He says, those of us that are Christians still struggle with this. That oftentimes we wake up and we feel really good because we think that we've performed. We think that we are really good Christians now because we've done all the things we need to do. And our sense of peace, our sense of joy, are not really resting in God's performance, not really resting in the sacrifice of Christ and God's unending love for us. But instead, we falsify the records, he says. We make it seem as if we're better than we are. We put on a mask because we want others to look at us and say, aren't they holy, aren't they good? He says, these won't really quiet the human conscience. Maybe this is why we're so busy. Maybe this is why we're always going, because we don't want to be still. We don't want to admit that we fall short, that we can't do it. And so we keep ourselves occupied in our minds and in our activities so we don't have to face the reality that we're not enough. That only God is. So we see the irony of disbelief and we see the stumbling block of the gospel. Four, we see that people can be genuinely zealous for God but not be saved. This goes against a huge maximum idiom in our, our culture, right? I mean, our culture says, listen, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it a lot, right? I mean, like, you see that, I mean, that's a common pop culture kind of idiom which says, listen, hey, they believe what they want to believe. They're really earnest in it, so that's perfectly okay. And what Paul says is, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. He says, listen, if you're going to a destination, you can run with all your might, but if you don't know how to get there, it doesn't really matter. You can run yourself in circles. I know when I first moved down here, I, uh, I lived in the old northeast, and I went on a run. It intended to be a three-mile run. It ended up being a six-mile run because I did not know how to get home because I continued to run in circles over and over again. And so I got a, a much more intense workout than I was planning for the day. Um, but the point is is that you can run hard, you can run fast, but if you don't know where you're running to, it doesn't matter. Listen, you can be very earnest in a math problem but still be wrong. You can study and you can try, 
But if you're wrong, you're wrong. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this, talking about um, our need to, to turn. He says, progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. And so I I think it's important for us to realize that that Paul's talking here about people that, that say that they love God. God's talking to people that say that they don't covet, to say that they try to love their neighbor, that say that they honor their father and mother. God's talking to these people, and he says that, that they're very zealous for these things. They're zealous for these things. You know, I think often when I think about Mormons or I think about Jehovah Witnesses, you know, you have people that come that are very zealous, right? They're knocking on doors, they're riding bicycle around in the heat, and they're very zealous for what they believe. Paul says, though they're zealous, they're ignorant. They're not zealous according to knowledge. And you see, zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. It's fanaticism. And so he says, if you have zeal alone, it doesn't save. You must have knowledge as well. But I I want to pause here too, because here's where we tend to kind of push back and say, well, I believe the gospel, right? I believe, I believe these things, but yet there's been no change. We're not hungry. We don't love the Lord. There's a lot of people that, that believe intellectually, but there's never been any kind of born again or transformation. And I'm not saying that we all have to have these quality of experiences, but I am saying that if we don't love God, then I, I would question whether we've been born again if there are not times where we genuinely love God, where it genuinely shows. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where we have faults and failures. There aren't times where we don't stumble. But it says, listen, the demons believe that there's a God. Right? I mean, Jesus, he's talking in Matthew 7. Right? He says, listen, they're going to become, there are many people that are going to come to me on the day. And they're going to say, Jesus, we did all of these awesome things. Don't you see? We cast out demons. We performed miracles. And he's going to tell them, I, n- I never knew you. I never knew you. And these are people that had genuine, probably, experiences. And they were very fanatic. They were very zealous. And he said, you didn't, didn't know me. You didn't know me according to knowledge. Right? And so we, we have to approach God both understanding who he is. We have to approach God the right way, and we have to approach God with with love and with correct belief. Correct belief. First um, Corinthians 16.22, it talks about this. It says, If anyone has no love for God, for the Lord, let him be accursed. I want to pause here because we believe in Christ, and that is how we're saved. But let me tell you, that belief produces a love. It produces a love for God. And so sometimes people walk an aisle or they say a prayer or they raise up in a family and they're, they're falsified. Cause I'm not, I'm not at all trying to have people walk away from this and, and doubt their salvation. That is not the goal of this, but what it is to do is it is to say, do we love Jesus? Because true salvation, being with the Lord produces a love for him. No one gets to heaven if they don't love God. I mean, I think that should be like pretty obvious kind of thing, but, but we have often people that pray a prayer and use God as a fire insurance card, but they don't want anything to do with God. If you don't want anything to do with God here, you're not going to want anything to do with God in heaven. And so we love God. We love God. 
So we need to be zealous for God and have a right knowledge and have a right knowledge. And the last thing, the last thing as, as we close, is that we see a vision, God's vision for the world. God's vision for the world. And this ties in with ethnic diversity that we talked about first. But we see that, and we're going to talk about later on Romans, but Paul directly ties our understanding of God's election and predestination with our evangelization. What I mean is that you, if you understand that God has elected some, this is not going to lead you to be silent. Like the last thing that understanding predestination and election does is cause you to like be the frozen chosen. All right? What, what, what an understanding of predestination election does, what it did for Paul and what it did for the biblical authors, is it caused them to go share the gospel because they knew they were the means of God's salvation. They were the way that people heard, and they didn't know who was going to be saved. And so what understanding this does is it causes you to be more bold rather than less. Because it says, listen, other salvation isn't relied upon you, so be faithful. Because why don't we share the gospel? We share the gospel because we're afraid. We don't share the gospel because we think we're going to mess it up. Because, man, if I mess it up, if I say the wrong words, then what's going to happen? But as you see, this frees us. It says, be obedient, and God saves just share the gospel. Tell them about me. And I'm going to save some. And can I tell you that's such a freeing thing. You know, like as I've been praying through this, as the Lord's sinking this deeper in my heart and getting to share the gospel with people on a personal level, it is so much more freeing because what it calls me to do is it calls me to be faithful and to trust God with the results. Can I tell you in your life this is going to be such a freeing thing? It's going to be such a freeing thing because you are not responsible for the results. You're responsible for being faithful. Be faithful to share the gospel. Be faithful to love your coworkers. Be faithful and trust that God will bring about results. Scatter seed and God will grow. So God's heart is for the world and he wants us to be faithful and to trust him with the results. I want to read this hymn and then I want to, I want to close in, in prayer. This is by uh, Frederick Faber. It says, There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There's a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There's mercy with the Savior. There's healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind. In the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. Was there ever kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet, as a Savior who would have us come and gather at his feet? Let us pray. Father, thank you that you love us. We pray that you would bring clarity in these mysteries, that you would give us humility as we approach, and that you would give us peace in the times at which we don't understand. That we would trust your sovereignty, that you are in control of all things and that you bring about all things for the good of those that love you and for your glory. Would you help us also to be faithful? Would you help us to use the choices and the, the, the responsibility that we have in a way that would magnify your glory in our lives? I pray for our coworkers, for our friends, for our families, God, that you would liberate us, that you would free us, that we might share the gospel with greater boldness, with greater fervency. I pray for those that are zealous, but yet not according to knowledge. And I pray that you would bring forth the truth in greater clarity, that we would be examples, that we would be vessels of mercy that go about proclaiming the one that saved us 
through his power and might. We love you, Christ. Pray that you would send us out.